In Geneva, Switzerland, there is a 100 metre long stone monument called the Reformation Wall. And on it are carvings of some of the most famous and influential pastors and theologians of the Swiss Reformation in the 16th century. People like John Calvin and John Knox. But while Geneva came to be of central focus in the European Reformation, it is universally recognised that it began in a small German town on the 31st of October, 1517. So this year marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. But as we approach this truly significant date in church history, I wonder whether we can answer the question, what is it we are protesting? On the Reformation wall is found an inscription of what was the motto of the Swiss Reformation, but then became the motto of the entire Protestant Reformation. It says this, After darkness, light. After darkness, light. Now the picture that this statement evokes is quite dramatic. There was once darkness and then there was light. Something happened 500 years ago that resulted in a split, a change such that we now speak of the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. But do we know what brought it about? Does it even matter anymore? Is it even legitimate to refer to the Catholic Church and Protestant churches as as really one church, all belonging to the body of Christ, but, you know, we just have a few disagreements? Or is there something at the heart of this that while we might agree on certain aspects of theology, there are things worth dividing over? There are things that actually separate a true church from a false church. It's generally considered that there were two main causes of the Reformation. Uh, On the one hand, there was the authority of Scripture, and on the other hand, there was the nature of justification. Was it Scripture alone, or was it Scripture plus the tradition of the church? Was it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that a person was justified, forgiven of their sins and declared righteous? Or was it these things plus good works? These were the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus. And only these things could be for the glory of God alone. Sola Deo Gloria. In the last decade of the 20th century, uh, great strides were made uh, between Catholic theologians and uh, Protestant evangelical theologians to try and determine if these differences uh, declared in the 16th century were legitimate and whether they were still standing. Or whether perhaps... Looking back and with more hindsight, those differences were just kind of misunderstood in the 16th century. Perhaps it was just miscommunication and people were talking past each other. 
A document was produced in 1994 uh, called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, or ECT for short. In one point, the document states that the New Testament makes it clear that the gift of justification is received through faith. Now, after making some further points, they finish the paragraph declaring, we understand that what we here affirm is in agreement with what the Reformation traditions have meant by justification by faith alone. That is sola fide. Now, remember, this is a joint document between Catholics and Evangelical Protestants. But the problem was that while ECT spoke about justification being received through faith, at no place in the entire document is it mentioned in connection to that little word, alone. Now the wording of that document meant that both Catholics and Evangelicals could affirm it, but each with their own understanding of what justification by faith meant to them. Now, in 1998, a group of distinguished evangelical leaders, unhappy with the ambiguity uh, that came about through ECT, they put together another document in response called The Gospel of Jesus Christ, an Evangelical Celebration. And you can find that and the other document online. Now, this evangelical response pronounced in no uncertain terms that the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone is essential to the gospel and denied in no uncertain terms that any person can believe the biblical gospel and at the same time reject the apostolic teaching of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. It was pretty clear. Now, I mention all of these things to give you a picture of the discussions that have been going on in the past, some in the recent past, some much further back. And we do this not simply so that you can know some facts, but so that you can understand what is really at stake. The question at the centre of the Reformation was, how is a sinner made right before holy God? And that is a question that's pertinent to every single person in every single generation. Do we need to contribute anything to our being made right with God? That's the heart of the matter. Is the gospel good news or does the gospel leave us with an impossible task? The key text of the Reformation dealt with this question. A text that changed everything, the text that when it was interpreted correctly, changed everything. And it was found in Paul's letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, the Apostle Paul declared this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this morning, we're going to be trekking through the historical and theological beginnings of the Reformation, that we might understand the darkness that enveloped the church 
and that we might then appreciate the light that emerged. The righteous shall live by faith alone. This was just as true 500 years ago as it is today. So let's begin with understanding the enveloping darkness. Now, there was great moral decline in the church in the centuries leading up to the Reformation. And you can read about that. We're not going to spend time on that aspect this morning because the real issue, the central issue in the 16th century, the heart, which no doubt exhibited itself in the morality, was theology. What was the Roman church's view on salvation at the time of the Reformation? Why did it need reform? Well, there are two main resources for understanding this, and we're going to make reference to these today. The first uh, is the canons and decrees from the Council of Trent, uh, which was the counter-reformation of the Catholic Church that was held in the latter half of the 16th century. And the other document that we'll make reference to is the New Catechism of the Catholic Church, which was published uh, far more recently in 1992 under the guides of Pope John Paul II. Now, the Catholic Church believes that salvation is by grace, through faith and in Christ. Absolutely it does. But what they mean by those terms is different to how the Reformers came to define them. Catholic response to the question of how a sinner is made right before holy God, we need to understand stemmed out of its understanding of justification. The Catholic definition of justification is derived from the Latin word justificare, which means to make righteous. So the church taught that when God justified a person, He truly made them righteous. He made them inherently righteous. But while God poured his grace into a person, that person needed to cooperate with that grace for it to remain effective. We can see that clearly in the decrees of Trent, which at one point declared this, justification is not remission of sins merely, but also the sanctification and renewal of the inward man through the voluntary reception of the grace and of the gifts whereby man of unjust becomes just. And so sinners are made right with holy God through his grace and their ongoing cooperation with that grace. From the turn of the first millennia AD, the Roman church developed an intricate sacramental system that essentially covered the whole process of salvation and which provided a means for people to continue working with God's grace. Peter Lombard uh, was a 12th century theologian and he listed the sacraments as numbering seven. It was baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, Extreme unction, which is the anointing of oil uh, before death, ordination and marriage. And while the first five of these are for every Christian, the last two, ordination and marriage, are mutually exclusive. 
is you can be a priest or you can be married, but you can't be both. The point of this structure is to cover the beginning of a person's life to the end. Now, why seven sacraments? Well, supposedly, these were all instituted by Christ. Uh, They are all perceptible signs of God's grace, and they all convey grace. And this last facet is the most important. The Catholic understanding of a sacrament is that it is something that conveys God's grace to people. It is not that they merely signify or are symbolic of the gracious work of God and believer, but that they actually confer God's grace in themselves. One standard Catholic textbook explains, the sacraments of the new covenant contain the grace which they signify and bestow it on those who do not hinder it. Now the technical word for this is a Latin word, or a Latin phrase, uh, which is ex opera operato, which means by the work performed. So while the receptivity of a person is important, they need to be open to it, nevertheless, the grace is always present in the sacrament themselves. Now this understanding of the nature of the sacraments informs the understanding of salvation. If grace is conveyed in the sacraments, then it becomes necessary to participate in them in order to experience salvation and to remain in that state of grace. The faith of the individual is also a necessary component. And in the case of infants, that faith is supplied by the church. However, faith is merely the beginning of the process of justification, which is found in obedience to the sacraments. Now, in narrowing down our discussion to focus on the the primary issues of concern in the Reformation, we're led to a consideration of baptism and penance. According to Rome, uh, it is the sacrament of baptism that a person initially experiences justification. It's through baptism that this comes about. In the Catholic Catechism, uh, we read, justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God who makes us inwardly just by the power of his mercy. Now, earlier in the Catechism, there is full acknowledgement uh, that the work of Jesus on the cross is what makes justification possible. But it is through baptism that God bestows his grace into the individual. That is, Christ's righteousness is poured into the individual and they are truly made righteous and just. Again, while faith is important, baptism is referred to in the Council of Trent as the instrumental cause of justification. That is, it is the instrument or the tool by which something is accomplished. The problem, though, is that this justification can be lost if a person commits a mortal sin. Now, Catholics differentiate between two levels of sin. There are venial sins and there are mortal sins. 
Venial sins are not as serious, whereas mortal are extremely serious because they can actually kill the justifying grace within a person. But all is not lost because there is the sacrament of penance. In the decrees of the Council of Trent, we find the following regarding the statement of the sacrament of penance. This manner of justification is of the fallen, the reparation is repairing, which the Holy Fathers have aptly called a second plank after the shipwreck of grace lost. So, for those who have made a shipwreck of their lives through sin, and as a result, the justifying grace within them has been killed, there is a second chance, a second plank that they can cling to, the sacrament of penance. Now, the Council of Trent outlines three features of the sacrament of penance, contrition, confession, and satisfaction. Contrition is that sorrow of mind, a detestation for the sin committed. It's different to attrition, which is just a simply fear of the punishment that comes. Contrition is a deep desire and hatred for the sin that has been committed. Secondly, penance includes confession. Uh, we read in Trent that the universal church has always understood that the entire confession of sins was also instituted by the Lord and is of divine right necessary for all who have fallen after baptism. Now, with these first two features of penance, there was, with some considerable considerations, much agreement with the reformers. I mean, Scripture speaks clearly of the need for genuine repentance and of the need for confessing sins. These aspects were not the major bone of contention. That came with the third aspect of penance, works of satisfaction. Listen to these words from Trent. And it beseems the divine clemency that sins be not in such wise pardoned us without any satisfaction. Now, Scripture makes clear that genuine repentance always leads to works of restitution. But what we see in this decree is that these works are required before God will grant any pardon. And so, according to Catholic theology, God's forgiveness becomes conditional upon a person's works. Now, if a person can manage to perform works of satisfaction adequate to grant God's pardon, so that when they die, they die in a state of grace, then they will go directly to God's presence in heaven. But what happens if a believer dies with unresolved sin in their lives? Well, this led to the development of the concept of purgatory, a place where Christians went to have their sins purged from them to make them fit for heaven. The concept of purgatory was formally established as Catholic doctrine in the 13th century and the Catholic Catechism explains it this way, All who die in God's grace and friendship but still imperfectly purified are indeed assured of their eternal salvation but after death they undergo purification 
so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Now that's pretty daunting. But with such a future prospect for all but a few saintly individuals, the Catholic Church developed another concept known as indulgences. Again, the Catholic Catechism explains it this way. An indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which is the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with with authority the treasury of the satisfaction of Christ and the saints. Now that's a bit of a mouthful, but what it tells us is that in heaven, if you didn't know, there is a treasury of satisfactions, a treasury of merit. Now it contains the merits of Christ, but it also contains the excessive merits of saintly Christians who have previously died. They reached a certain level, acceptable to God, and their excess merits were pulled together in this treasury. Now, accordingly, the church declared it had the power to grant people indulgences, a portion from the treasury of merit that they might have years removed from their time in purgatory. And it was not merely for themselves, but they could receive indulgences for their loved ones who had already died that they might shorten their time in purgatory as well. Well, that essentially is the gospel, according to Rome. According to Catholic teaching, how is a sinner made right with holy God? By grace, through faith in Christ. But it is decidedly not by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. The church at the time of the Reformation taught that justification was contingent upon human cooperation with God's grace. There was a blurring of justification and sanctification together. But a theology like this, which is a theology of justification by faith plus works, means that people can have no assurance of their salvation. They will forever be questioning whether they have done enough. Indeed, it was this issue of assurance that plagued Martin Luther. While there were many who had begun to critique the morality of the Catholic Church, none had gotten to the core issues of theology. It was through this German monk whom God brought the emerging light from the darkness. Martin Luther was born in Germany in 1483 and he was on his way to a promising career in law when in 1505 at the age of 21 he was heading back to his university campus and he got stuck in this tremendous thunderstorm. And when a bolt of lightning struck near him, uh, he was knocked to the ground. And in fear for his life, he cried out, Help me, St. Anne, and I'll become a monk. St. Anne was the patron saint of minors, the vocation of Martin's father, Hans. 
or true to his word, but against the wishes of his father, Martin immediately changed the course of his life by entering the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt in Germany. Now Luther, he was plagued by his desire to remain in God's grace. And he was the most penitent monk there was. He was always in confession, always performing works of satisfaction. At one point, his advisor told him not to come to confession until he had some real sins to confess. Now, there were two moments that truly made him wonder if all that he was doing had any effect whatsoever. The first was in 1507 uh, when he was ordained as a priest and he celebrated his first Mass. He suddenly became absolutely terrified of the thought that he, a lowly sinner, should be found acceptable to fix his eyes on the divine majesty. The second came a couple of years later in 1510. He had opportunity to go to Rome and while he was there, uh, he made the most of visiting the incredible number of relics and holy places. Uh, for the church had previously declared that indulgences, remember the dispensing of the merits of the saints, these could be received by going and, and visiting and praying at the site of these relics or these holy places. But he began to question whether it was possible for the merit of the saints to actually be conveyed to him at all. After climbing the, the Scala Sancta, which were supposedly the same stairs that Jesus walked on his way up to his trial before Pilate, and supposedly they'd been brought from Jerusalem to Rome. Well, after reaching the top and having stopped on each step on his way up to, to pray the Lord's Prayer in hopes of removing years of his deceased grandfather's time in purgatory, he came to the top, he looked down and declared soberly, who knows whether this is so? Luther's advisor, Johann Stalpitz, was the Dean of Theology at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. And he decided the best way to assist the young man was to get Luther invested in further studies of the scriptures. And so he told Luther, uh, who was already an academic, to, to study further and become a doctorate of theology and that he should also then take the preaching chair at the university. Stalpich's idea was essentially a case of physician, heal thyself. Despite his own protests, Luther chose to follow that advice, and he became the professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg in 1512, and he began to teach through the scriptures, starting with the Psalms, and then through Romans, and then on to Galatians. This in itself was something new because the main form of study during that period had been to study the writings of the church theologians, learning about God and the Bible through their words. However, at the beginning of the 16th century, there was this great secular movement that saw people desiring to go back to the sources, to go back to the original works, which included the Bible. Uh, but while others studied the Bible because it was an historical book and it was old and that's what you did, Luther studied it because he wanted to hear from God. And to hear, he did. 
When he reached Psalm 22, which opens with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He saw that they clearly identified with Christ. But what was the meaning? He discerned that it couldn't mean that the sinless Christ had done something to deserve God's abandoning. No, the only logical reasoning was that Christ had received God's punishment in the place of someone who actually deserved it. And so Luther began to see that Christ acted as a substitute for his people. But the biggest breakthrough, the moment his eyes were opened, indeed the moment of his new birth by the Spirit, happened through his time studying Romans. And this is referred to as his tower experience. And it concerned Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. In verse 17 in particular where it says, For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now listen to the testimony of the man himself. I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit could appease him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. And so night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. And thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Martin Luther had rediscovered the glorious biblical truth that sinners are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In his studies of the original language of the Bible, he had come to see that God doesn't make people inherently righteous, this side of heaven. Uh, he, he came to see, uh, doesn't make us inherently righteous, and he doesn't then expect us to maintain that righteousness in cooperation with God's grace. That is surely impossible. No, he came to see that the actual Greek word translated as justify means to declare righteous. God graciously bestows on believers a righteousness outside of themselves, which Luther described as an alien righteousness, a righteousness belonging to someone else. And so God declares sinners righteous because he imputes or he reckons their sins to Christ 
and he imputes Christ's righteousness to the sinner. That's why Luther could say of Christians that they are at the same time just and a sinner. Christ's work is sufficient, absolutely sufficient for the believer to be saved. And what's more, the faith that believers exhibit is not their own work, but by grace alone. For both repentance and faith are gracious gifts of God. When he stumbled across this, you can hear in his words the freedom that he experienced. The recognition that the gospel is good news. So how did this recovery lead to a full-on break with the church of the day? Well, in 1517, around the time that Luther's eyes were opened to the truth of the gospel, a Dominican monk called John Tetzel, or Johann Tetzel, caused a great stir when he came into the region of Luther's university and began selling indulgences to the people. Tetzel was not allowed to sell in Luther's state of Saxony because the prince-elector Frederick the Wise had banned the sale of them. But that didn't stop people just crossing the state line and going to hear Tetzel preach. Now, Tetzel had been an official seller of indulgences for many years. And there's two things we need to understand, though, about this round of selling. The first is the reasoning behind the selling of indulgences. It wasn't out of spiritual concern for the souls of people, but it rather concerned politics and economics. The current Pope, Pope Leo X, had inherited a building program established from the previous Pope for the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and he was running out of money. The current Archbishop of the area where Luther was, uh, Albert of Mainz, he had borrowed money to purchase his position as the Archbishop, even though he was uh, Bishop of two other areas, which was illegal. So between the Pope and the Archbishop and the banking house, which held all the money, a repayment scheme was established. And the means of this would be through the sale of indulgences. Second thing to understand is that John Tetzel was an entrepreneur who went further than the Vatican had officially authorised when it came to how the indulgences were sold, although it seems clear that the Vatican was still aware of it. Officially, indulgences could be offered to people to remove years off their future time in purgatory for sins they had committed, and also to remove years off their deceased relative time in purgatory for the sins that they had committed in their lives. But Tetzel... Tetzel, sensing a clear opportunity that had not yet been utilised, he extended this, offering indulgences to remove years off a person's future time in purgatory for sins they had not yet even committed. So in essence, he was selling get-out-of-jail-free cards. And being the consummate salesman, Tetzel even created a jingle. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That's brilliant. Well, it was this action 
that stirred Martin Luther, stirred uh, the heart of a pastor for his flock, stirred a loyal son of the church to protect the honour of the Pope and the church. And it would take Luther a few more years before he would reject the practice of indulgences altogether. But in 1517, he was merely trying to address the abuses he saw within a legitimate practice. So he wrote a polite letter to Albert, the Archbishop of Mainz, addressing his concerns, as well as a list of 95 theses, 95 points that address the problem of the abuse of indulgences in far greater detail. Now, after posting the letter and the theses, he then walked down to the castle church in Wittenberg and nailed a copy of his 95 theses to the door. This was on All Hallows' Eve, 31st of October, 1517. Now, referring to this moment in history, it's been written that Luther was like a man climbing a bell tower at night who lost his balance, grasped the bell rope, and woke up the whole town. You see, Luther's aim in nailing the 95 Theses was to start a scholarly debate about what was happening. That is why uh, they were written in Latin, which is not the common language of the people. That is why he nailed them to the door in the first place, because this was common practice for the academic community. But how did it go from trying to be a scholarly discussion to igniting a fire of community revolution? Well, because unbeknownst to Luther, some of his students took a copy of the theses and had it translated into German and then printed and distributed it everywhere thanks to the recent invention of the printing press. Luther had no idea all this had happened. Well, without going into any more detail of events, over the next few years, Luther's theology began to develop. He began to write more and dispute more over the teaching of the Catholic Church, not only on justification by faith alone, but on the sacraments, purgatory, the authority of the Pope and councils, among other matters. And all this led to the famous incident in 1521, when at the Diet of Worms, Luther was brought to trial by the church for heresy. Now, when he was asked to recant of the views that he had expressed, he calmly and clearly declared this. Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, for I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Well, to get back to the beginning of our discussion today, we must ask, is this all in the past? Have we now moved on? Are we really talking about the same matters but with different language or from different angles? Can Protestants and Catholics really be united in the Gospel? The infallibility of the Pope 
means that what was declared in the Council of Trent in the 16th century remains the teaching of the church today. In the document that council produced, we read the following statements. In canon number 9, it is stated, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified, in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed if he suggests by faith alone. In canon number 24, it states, If anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. Are works important? Absolutely. The reformers declared that a person is justified by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. And the relationship between faith and works will be the topic of next week's message. But unlike the Catholic teaching that includes works in its definition of justification, the Bible teaches that works flow out of justification works are the fruit of justification not the root cause this is essentially why we are called protestants we are protesting the claim that our efforts contribute in any way to being declared right with god In an objective sense, the gospel is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But in a subjective sense, it is the means in which sinners benefit from who Christ is and what he has done. And to say that our works are involved in this process, even if accompanied by faith and empowered by grace, then we have undermined the gospel We are left with a false gospel, a gospel that is decidedly not the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is why Luther described the doctrine of justification by faith alone as the article upon which the church stands or falls. There is only one gospel and it is declared by the authority of scripture alone. It is by faith alone. It is by grace alone. It is in Christ alone. And it is to the glory of God alone. For he alone is responsible for making it happen. If you have not discovered this truth, if you are still trying to earn your way to God, if you are still trusting in your own works to enable a right standing before God, then I implore you to humbly acknowledge that this is just not possible. You cannot do it. But there is one who has. The Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Him, in His goodness in his righteousness, in his total and utter sufficiency. 
Without this truth, there is only darkness. But in Christ, we see the glorious light of heaven. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you and give you praise that it is all your work in bringing sinners to salvation. We acknowledge that the fruit of that salvation is seen in the way that we uh, conform to Christ in the way that we live and we know that one day we'll be glorified in the resurrection. But we recognise with humility that our works have no place in being justified before you. We thank you for the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness, that he alone is the saving one, that our eyes should be fixed totally upon him. Father, we thank you that it is by your grace alone and that faith, not any work of man, but faith alone is the instrumental cause of our justification. Father, we thank you that even this is not a work, but that it is a gift of your grace. Father, help us as we we think through uh, the details of the Reformation over these next two weeks, and may it stir in us a deep desire to learn more about the history, to learn more about what has happened in the past, how you have worked through your people uh, to bring the light of the truth of heaven into this world. May we not be uh, happy to rest upon our laurels and, and think that we have ever learned enough about you, but may you bring a deep desire in us through the presence and guiding strength of your spirit uh, to keep searching your word. For it alone is truth and it alone is the authority and it alone points us to the living word, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.